0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Kirk Hansen, Senior Fellow at the Markola Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University, a member of the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley Advisory Board, and your moderator for today. As the club continues to host virtual events, we are grateful for the continued support of our members and donors. Visit CommonwealthClub.org to learn more about membership or to support the club right now with a tax-deductible gift by checking the blue Donate button on your screen. It's my pleasure to introduce Chris Wallace, Fox News Sunday anchor and author of the book Countdown Bin Laden, the untold story of the 247-day hunt to bring the mastermind of 9-11 to justice. Chris joined Fox News in 2003 and became the first journalist from the network to moderate a general election presidential debate in 2016. Through his 50-plus years in broadcasting, Chris has won every prominent news award, including three Emmys, the Peabody Award, and the National Press Foundation's Saul Teshoff Award for Broadcast Journalism. Chris, welcome. And let me invite you to take a few minutes and uh, make some opening comments so we can get into a discussion about the book. I'll then ask some questions, and then I'll uh, ask on behalf of our viewers questions that they raise.
1: So please. Kirk, thank you, and thank all of you for watching. Uh, This is my second time speaking to the Commonwealth Club, and while I'm delighted to speak to you, it's my second time speaking to you virtually since I did last year with my first book, Uh, and I was trying to think today whether that means you owe me two trips to San Francisco or I owe you two trips to San Francisco, but in any case, I hope that someday we we can do this face-to-face, I've always wanted to attend and let alone to participate in a Commonwealth Club meeting. So I'm delighted to be here today. I thought I would just talk to you briefly about Countdown Bin Laden, set the stage, and then Kirk and I are gonna talk for the better part of an hour. Uh, when I wrote my first book, Countdown 1945, and spoke to the club last year, uh, I, I have a better sense now because of the reaction to it, uh, of what it is that I wanted to accomplish. It kind of came organically. And that is that I wanted to write a history thriller. Uh, one of the things that has struck me about history is that I think, sounds a little pret- pretentious, that it's, it, that it's written wrong. It's written very much in the rear view mirror. We know what happened. Now let's analyze why it happened or how it happened. But to me, the real thrill of history is that when the people were going through it, they didn't know what was going to happen. And as I was telling the story of 1945 in this countdown format, where I began, in that case, the day, April 12, 45, when Truman becomes president and is told that day for the first time about the existence of the Manhattan Project until he made the fateful decision in early August, of 45 to drop the bomb on Hiroshima. There were all kinds of, of questions and and unknowns and tension because they didn't know as they were living this history in the, those, the present time in real time, what was gonna happen. And it, it did seem to work and it was a bestseller and, and folks seemed to very much like it. And so I thought I wanted to do it again. Um, the, my one frustration was there were so many times I was always trying to take people into the story of Countdown 1945 that I wanted to know more about what the key players, Truman and Robert Oppenheimer at Los Alamos and Paul Tibbetts on the Enola Gay, what they were thinking and feeling and discussing in the moment. And of course I couldn't do it. I had histories and I had uh, diaries and, and memoirs and letters. But I couldn't ask them because they were all gone. And so when I decided to write a second book, and this may, to some degree, define the the tension between being a historian and a reporter, uh, I thought, I want to do a history, but I want to do a history where I can ask the people uh, exactly those kinds of questions. But obviously, that meant it had to be a much more contemporary history. And I came up with the idea of Countdown Bin Laden uh, and the idea of timing it to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Of course, it never occurred to me that the group, the Taliban, that was in charge of Afghanistan on 9-11-2001 would be in charge of Afghanistan on 9-11-2021. But I did have an opportunity. I, I knew most of the players and those I didn't. I was able to to get to talk to to talk to almost everybody that was uh, a key player, and as a result, I think it it really helped the, the the countdown format because I people were able to put me in real time as to what they were saying, what they were thinking, and also you know the little anecdotes that add such texture and excitement to history. And so my story begins on August twenty seventh of twenty ten when three members of the Counterterrorism Center come in to uh, see Leon Panetta, who's then director of the CIA, and tell him they have the best lead on bin Laden in nine years since he disappeared in Tora Bora in December of 2001. And, And what was so interesting about it, and I had talked for hours to Panetta, is they described this compound, they called it a fortress, in Abbottabad, Pakistan. And what was so interesting is that everybody at the CIA, and in fact, Panetta had been interviewed a few weeks before, uh, whereas bin Laden had said and thought that he was in that remote tribal area between Afghanistan and Pakistan, mountains, caves, tremendously remote tribes there, very difficult to penetrate and that that's where he had been hiding for these nine years. And Abbottabad uh, it was an upscale retirement community north of Islamabad in central Pakistan. It was the home of the Pakistani West Point nestled in the Himalaya Mountains, uh, a retirement community, golf courses. And as Panetta said, as they're describing this to him, this idea of this compound in, in uh, Abbottabad, he's thinking to himself, if that's true, and they didn't know for it at all, they just knew they had this one lead, which we can talk about if Kirk wants to ask me, if that's true, then everything that the CIA had thought about the whereabouts of bin Laden for the last nine years was completely wrong. He was hiding in plain sight in a very uh, public community, not, in, not you know hiding, secreted away in a very remote and, and hard to reach area. And and the story just goes on from there. And it's the CIA trying to build uh you know, a case, trying to get intelligence and, and struggling uh even with this compound in Abbottabad, to find out who's living inside it. Uh then it ends up at the White House. And fascinatingly, um when on September tenth of twenty ten, one day shy of, of of the ninth anniversary of nine eleven when Panetta and his group from the CIA come in to brief President Obama and his top national security advisors, like Tom Donnell and like uh, John Brennan in the Oval Office, one of the things that Obama makes very clear is he says, I want this to stay among us, because he realized uh, very quickly that if, in fact, it was true, if bin Laden was in this place, and this was the best lead in nine years, that any even just whiff of a leak and he would disappear into the night and the lead would be gone. So that literally meant that he didn't, they Hillary Clinton wasn't read into this until March of 2011, about a month before the raid took place. Uh, Secretary of defense Gates wasn't read into it until December of 2010, three months after uh, Obama learned of it. So the the operational security uh, of, of this whole case was, was extraordinary. And then we go in great detail, and again, I'm talking to people who were in the room about their impressions at various points through the decision-making process in the situation room. And then finally, the military is brought in, and uh, I I talked at great length to Bill McRaven, who was then the head of Joint Special Operations Command, the the guy in Afghanistan who organized and oversaw these missions. Inside Afghanistan to take out terrorists. Uh, and then finally, the SEALs are brought in in April uh, of 2011, just really the final month, and, and train on it. And, and so, Countdown Bin Laden takes you, as I say, inside the CIA, inside the sit room, inside the helicopters, the two stealth Blackhawk helicopters that go from Jalalabad in eastern Afghanistan to Abbottabad in central Pakistan. Uh, and then into the compound and up the stairs to the third floor. Um, the the biggest compliment I've, I've gotten about the book, and, and this is very much what I was hoping to achieve, is people say, well, I know how the story turns out, but I was on the edge of my seat for the last 100 pages because I couldn't wait to find out what was going to happen next. And that's what I wanted 45 to be and now Bin Laden to be, is a history thriller. So with all of that as background, uh, Kirk, I'm happy to talk with you and answer any questions.
0: Great. I'm, I'm sorry we don't have a band here uh, as part of our ceremony like you uh, had on Stephen Colbert the other night, but uh, we'll do our best. We have a very thoughtful audience at the Commonwealth Club that's interested both in the message and the material you have, but also in your motivations for for why you uh, wrote this. Let me, let me start there. Why would a journalist who's uh, probably at the busiest moment in your career and uh, at the height of your career take the time? To write these two countdown books and and uh, uh, you could be doing many other things uh, that might uh, have different kinds of impacts on your life
1: well uh, <laughs> I, it 's not that i 'm not busy and particularly when I wrote countdown forty five which was uh, right during the last year of the trump administration, and we all used to say that covering Donald Trump was like uh, drinking water out of a fire hose. I certainly was plenty busy but you know I, I've been doing Fox News Sunday, not to say I'm not still excited and motivated. I've been doing it for eighteen years uh i have kind of got the hang of it, and you know I found that i I did have some free time and the other thing I guess is that you want something that lasts longer you know uh I, I, a Sunday talk show can have some excitement and make some news, but it's gone with the wind, and one hopes that uh that these books last a little longer and and appeal to an audience, engage an audience in a different way. Uh, so I, I'm, you know, I'm delighted to have done it. it I got to say, I, I, my daughter, one of my daughters is in publishing. And at one point when I was writing the first book, I said, damn, writing books is complica- hard. And she kind of rolled her eyes like, yeah, dad, uh, it is. But uh, I, I, I and I have to say, like a lot of things in life that are tough, there are great highs. Sometimes when you get a great anecdote and something that, you know, has never been reported before from from one of the people I interviewed uh, and great lows when you're just slogging and it just seems really tough and arduous. Uh, but I'm really happy I've done it. And I'm really happy the, the response I've gotten uh, from people who've been engaged by these books. So I, I'm very satisfied.
0: For the Bin Laden book, what do you hope happens in your readers' minds as they read this thriller uh, about day by day, what uh, the preparations were uh, over those days?
1: Well, I'd say three things. And part of this, uh, frankly, uh, you know, it changed because of the circumstances of the last month. As I say, I, I you know, I fully expected it was time to come out on the 20th anniversary, but I fully expected the U.S. still to be or just to be getting out of uh, Afghanistan and the Afghan government and security forces still still to be in control, fighting the Taliban, but still certainly to be in control of Kabul. Of course, that's not at all what happened. I'd say, first of all, what I hope people get out of it is it's a hell of a good story. I mean, you know, everybody I know that has read Khantan Bin Laden says that, you know, that really engaged me. And I wasn't sure it was going to, because a lot of people say, I thought I, I knew all about it. And, you know, there's, there's so much stuff in here that I think even people that think they know about it are going to be surprised by and engaged by, uh, that I think they'll enjoy it. Secondly, and, and that was what I always wanted to accomplish. And I think it's a good history and an interesting history and a, uh, but I think that, it, to me, the book has more resonance because of what's happened in the last month. And and that is two things. First of all, I, a lot of people, I'm sure, that are watching are, are unhappy with how the American disengagement from uh, pull-out, withdrawal, retreat, whatever you want to call it, from uh, pa- Afghanistan happened. Uh, even if you agree with the decision that we needed to pull out, you know, th- it, it wasn't done well. And and uh, I think a lot of people, the fact that Americans about a hundred, according to Secretary of State Blinken, are still there, thousands of Afghan allies, the people who were uh, drivers and translators and cooks uh, for the U.S. effort for the last twenty years, are still stuck there. You know, I, I think that that is tough for a lot of us to consider. And so I hope that one of the things that people do is, regardless of how our longest war ended we did accomplish the main goals. Uh, You know, we went into Afghanistan in the first place to get bin Laden, to decapitate al-Qaeda, and to make sure that uh, no terror attacks starting in Afghanistan ever hit the U.S. homeland. And for 20 years, we we did all of those things. Uh, And and so I think that's important, that, that we did do some good and did have some successes in Afghanistan, regardless of what happens next. And the other thing, and again, this is kind of has new resonance because of the last month. If the last month, and to me it is, a kind of case study of a lot of stuff that went wrong in terms of the intel about how fast the Taliban would take over, in terms of some of the political decisions that were being made inside the White House, in terms of the military operation drawing down to 700, then having to go back up to five or 6,000, uh the 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 chaos at the Kabul airport if, if that's kind of a case study of how it's done wrong, kirk, I think that count on bin Laden the story of how they we we've tracked bin laden made uh, i think really in quite remarkably meticulous and tight uh decision making the decision to launch the raid and then the operation the ex- execution by the uh by the navy seals is a case study of how the branches, when they work together uh, in perfect cohesion, can do something right.
0: A counterpoint to perhaps what we've seen the last month. So um, I'm interested in why the subjects that you interviewed were willing to be so forthcoming. Um, uh, Leon Panetta is a good friend of the Commonwealth Club. He may well have the record for the most number of trips to California to appear at Commonwealth Club events. But he does that so he can get back to Carmel Valley, uh, his home. Uh, and uh, that's become a running joke. But why would Leon Panetta spend so much time with you? Why did McRaven and the others, why were they willing to have this story told in as much detail as you were able to tell it?
1: Well, I'd like to say it's because of my natural charm. And I'm a little surprised, Kirk, that you didn't, that it doesn't, it's not self-evident, but, you know, I think seriously, a few things. First of all, I know a lot of these people. I've been in Washington for 40 years. I know Leon, I know Admiral McRaven, uh, uh, Tom Donilon, John Brennan, you know, I, you could go on and on. So, so, I mean, I think I had, if you will, some street cred with them. But I think Two things, most of all, and I and I and these are reasons why I think the timing of the book really worked out well. There were several history books written in the year or two after uh, the Bin Laden raid, but you know a lot was still pretty classified at that point. Uh, that's one, and and you know now on on the it's not only the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven, it's also the tenth anniversary of this raid. I think people feel they can talk more freely, and second. I think people are justifiably proud of it and and you know i when I was able to persuade them that I was serious about this book that I wanted you know to tell the story in in all detail and uh uh I think they thought they they want they were happy to have this on the record. It's interesting because while a couple of books were written uh as I say in the immediate aftermath of the raid uh, each almost all of these people wrote a memoir gates hillary clinton barack obama and they only devoted a chapter you know which was relatively short and and didn't go into nearly as much detail as as i do in countdown bin laden as to what how it came down what their role was the back and forth the doubts the the tension uh and so i think it, you know and when when Panetta, he may not only have the record for the Commonwealth Club, I think I interviewed him four times and probably for over four hours total. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you get a detail in the fourth interview that you hadn't gotten before. One of the things that I know people were intrigued by is that when he came back to be CIA director under Obama, he, you know, he had his time there as a congressman. He had his time there as chief of staff uh, to Clinton. You know he was he was a little surprised because he had in effect retired to Monterey and then came back. He ended up asking a friend of his if he could live in his apartment and the CIA director and his dog Bravo a golden retriever lived in an attic studio in the this friend's i guess not apartment home lived in the attic that they were able to turn you know it was like a studio apartment and he said, you know I didn't really care because i was spending about 12 or 14 hours a day at the CIA anywhere, anyway, so it was just a place for Bravo and me to to crash at night, and the CIA was able to turn it into uh, a secure location so he could make classified phone calls. So I think, one, it was enough time had passed that they felt they could talk more openly about it, and two, I think they wanted to get on the record something they were all very proud of.
0: Another of your interviewees that's uh, fascinating to me is Robert O'Neill and uh, the the man who shot, actually shot, bin Laden. And I I was interested particularly because there was controversy, which you address a little bit obliquely over whether he took too much credit for his role in the raid. Uh, But you present it very factually of what happened um uh and uh i i know there was some controversy over whether he was actually the sole person who shot uh you you made a definitive statement that he was the sole person and i gather admiral Mc, mcraven uh, uh last year said indeed he was the one who did um uh he was he was quite forthcoming were you trying deliberately to set the record straight in terms of his role
1: yeah, I, I mean, first of all, if you tell the story of the, the raid and, you know, how they got bin Laden, the person who actually took him out is, it's a pretty important part of the story. So it's not like I wanted to set the record straight. I shared a lot of those doubts. I remember when he first came out, uh, and did an interview, he was not, I want to make it clear, he was not the first seal to write a book. There was another one who who wrote a book first, and you know there was some feeling that that kind of broke the seal code that they were this 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 band of brothers, this secret uh, group of warriors, and they didn't talk about their mission, and they certainly didn't take credit for their mission. Uh, he didn't write the first book. Uh, he then, at a certain point, did write write a book about his role. Uh, and but and I you know like a lot a lot of people questioned. Would, he, would the guy that actually did it have told it? But, you know, when Bill McRaven uh, came out and said it was O'Neill, and he, he said it after, of course, it, O'Neill had already uh, taken responsibility, and I interviewed, uh, before I interviewed O'Neill, I interviewed McRaven at length. There, there's no question. He was the guy who did it. Um, it just, it's mm-hmm. just as simple as that. So he obviously becomes a main character in the book as a result. And he's a fascinating character. Grew up in Butte, Montana, uh, was, uh, you know, kind kind of uh, came from a broken home. His father uh, very much encouraged him in sports and a variety of other things. And and at one point, a friend of the father's, Tom O'Neill, who was a SEAL, came back uh, to Butte. And uh, Tom suggested that that Rob, who was, I think, still in high school at that point, maybe he had just started college. Uh, go up on a climb with with this seal, and it was a pretty arduous cl- climb up a steep mountain in Montana. And when it was over, uh, the seal said to to Rob, "You know, you you want to think about being a seal." I don't think that it really had been very much in his mindset, but he kind of sparked something. He had one problem; he didn't know how to swim because he, uh, you know, the, the, there obviously there are lakes and places, but. He had never really learned to swim, so he went to the local swim club in Butte and started swimming, and a guy who had been a collegiate swimmer at Notre Dame took him under his, his wing or his fin, and uh, and he ended up becoming a SEAL and a very experienced SEAL. The that, that single most, and he talks at great length, he's a major figure in the book, and talks at length about how they're briefed and uh, how they train and how they kept rappelling down and he was one of the older guys he was in his 30s uh, which for a seal is you know on the on the older side and he talked about how physically demanding the, the training was. but the most interesting thing uh, when I was interviewing him I said, so how dangerous and, and and remember and you may get into it or not but but when Obama authorizes the raid, he says this is a 50/50 proposition. he's either there or he's not. So there was no certainty. It was always a circumstantial case. Uh, you know, they did not have the smoking gun. They didn't know that bin Laden was there. And, uh, but I said to O'Neill, how dangerous did you think it was? And he said, one-way ticket. I said, excuse me? He said, suicide mission. He, he said, look, he may not be there, but if he's there, there's no question in my mind that when our helicopters hit the compound, it's going to be booby trapped and the whole thing is going to explode. And if that doesn't happen when we go into the main house where we think if bin Laden is there that's where he's hiding, they'll have bodyguards there and they'll throw hand grenades at us and you know have a, a overwhelming force. He said, "Look, I'm was perfectly prepared to die. If I could get Bin Laden, it was worth that was a bargain I was willing to make." And he said, "You know, I was doing it for the woman who went to work on 9-11 in the World Trade Center and the plane hits the tower. And at a certain point, she's confronted with a choice between the inferno there inside where it's 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit and looking out the window to a 90-story drop and decides going out the window is the better alternative. Uh, he said, I was doing that for her. And, and uh, you know, there are strange, breed, oh, a different thanks. breed, the the seals, but God bless them. And boy, am I glad we have them at the tip of the spear.
0: Yeah, definitely. D- do you have, uh, well, let's, let's just go to the bottom line. What surprised you most about this story when you got into it and were able to get so much of the detail? Were there things that leaped out at you as, I didn't know that, or um, uh, this is a really important fact that people need to know?
1: Oh, I think, so much of it. I mean, just that. I didn't know that the SEALs regarded it as a as a suicide mission. Uh, O'Neill was one of the team leaders and his team, as part of the two dozen SEALs, he nicknamed the Martyrs Brigade because he thought they weren't coming home. Another one was the fact And there's a meeting on April 28th, at, at Thursday, April 28th of 2011. This is the final meeting in the Situation Room. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll tell you two stories that 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 came out of this. And these are the kinds of, you know, nuggets and interesting developments. So they're talking about Obama's trying to get a sense how likely how how confident are people that Obama, I mean, that that Bin Laden is there in the compound. And he goes around and, you know, various people, somebody saying it's 50 percent. Somebody says it's 80 percent. And he finally turns to to Michael Morell, who's the deputy CIA director. He says, explain to me these different percentages. And uh, Morell says, look, it's not that the person who says 80 percent has any different facts than the person who says 50 percent. It's just how they assess the facts that we all know. And he said a lot of it has to do with the fact that we all come to this table today with different you know, different ex- life experiences and different experiences with intelligence. In fact, Tom Donlin, the national security advisor, said uh, that when they were meeting there in the sit room, he said history was in the room that day, meaning that everybody came to that room with their history, their experience. And and one of the best examples of that was was Bob Gates, the, the defense secretary. He had been an executive assistant to the CIA director back in 1980 when Jimmy Carter uh, ordered uh operation eagle claw which was the the uh Iranian hostage rescue mission which if people remember it ended up in a sandstorm in the middle of the desert and in in, in 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 Iran and helicopter crashed into a transport and i think eight us soldiers were killed and the, they didn't ever even got close to tehran never saved a hostage and it certainly contributed to jimmy carter losing the presidency well, you know, he came to the decision with that background and that sense that these things, you know, all can go wrong and can go horrendously wrong and have a huge impact. So back to Morell, when when he's going through this, he says, look, people, people have come to this with different analyses. And frankly, the people that have had longer experience, he didn't say Gates, but I think he was thinking of him. You know, they have seen these things go south and people. Who, who have had better experience in our intel and our execution, which were frankly the previous, that, the last 10 years in the w- war on terror, came with greater confidence. And then he said, in fact, frankly, the, the case that, uh, that, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction in Iraq was stronger than the case that bin Laden is in the compound. Well, when he says this, everybody in the room kind of gasps because they think, how, how could he say that? You know, I mean, th- this is one of the great intel failures of all time. George Tenet slammed duck on Iraq, And he's saying that, the, that that was a greater certainty than this. And Obama says, well, so you're saying that you wouldn't do it? He said, no, I would do it. Um, you know, because I think it's the best lead we've had on him in nine years. But he said, if I had somebody in the room that in, in the compound, who said, I had breakfast, an informant who said, I had breakfast with bin Laden this morning. I wouldn't give it 100 percent because informants get things wrong all the time. One last story in this regard that uh, to me, it was really kind of interesting. So uh, Obama then goes around the room and he asks Biden and Biden says, no, I'm against it. I don't think the evidence is strong enough. We need more time. And I'm very worried about the damage this will do to relations with Pakistan. And at that point, in the Af- war in Afghanistan, we were major supply lines through the Khyber Pass, through Pakistan to Afghanistan. He was worried they're going to be cut off. Then the next person, he talks to is Gates, and Gates is also against it. I've kind of described some of the reasons why. Anyway, after the meeting, and most of the, everybody else was for it, and then Obama said, I'll give you my decision in the morning. I want to sit up and think about it at night, which was standard operating procedure. So after the meeting... Uh, Gates goes back to the Pentagon and he's in the car with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Michael Mullen. And if you remember in Gates's uh, memoir after he he retired as secretary of defense, he famously said that Joe Biden had been wrong about every major foreign policy decision for the last 40 years. Well, he apparently had said this when he was secretary of defense inside the Pentagon and, and Biden was vice president. So in, when they are in the car going back to the Pentagon, uh, Mullen kind of tweaks them and says, well, you know how you always tell me that Biden's been wrong about every foreign policy decision for 40 years, and now you just voted with him not to do the ray. So, you know, it's that kind of stuff that I think just adds so much color and and texture and and perspective to the kinds of decisions that, these, that, that had to be made and how they made them.
0: Let me let me ask some of the questions I had as you know on on reading the book, and and indeed it's a good read. I was up till 2 a.m. finishing it the other night. Uh, God bless you. And uh, but uh one of the questions was that I had at the end was why did Obama go ahead with what he described as a 50-50 chance that um uh, this was bin Laden, but a 50 percent chance it wasn't. Why, why would you still go ahead and risk all of that uh, with uh, uh, Pakistan, the relationship with Pakistan?
1: Because I think he there was certainly a lot of evidence there. And, you know, there's a there's a opportunity risk. There's the the, the opportunity risk of invading. I mean, of, of, you know, of. of it was an invasion. They were going to go 162 miles into Pakistan without permission. But there's the risk of going and launching the operation. And there's, and, and maybe he isn't there or he is there and it goes south in a, in a terrible way. There's also the risk of, of not doing it. And the best opportunity, the best lead you've had in nine years was gone. And I think he, I, there were, I would say two things. One is I think it showed his trust in Panetta. That they had really done their due diligence, that they had done everything they could. Panetta was very strongly for it, and uh, and you know it it wasn't uh, it, it certainly wasn't a, a, a slam dunk, if you will, but it was it was a pretty strong case. There were a lot of reasons we go into. You know, there was this courier. Uh, there was uh, the the fact that they built this million dollar compound at a bada much bigger than any other place in the area it was had 18 foot walls in the back and 12 foot walls in the front it had a terrace that looked out over the Himalayan mountains but the terrace was shielded by a seven foot privacy wall so who builds a terrace to look at the view and then blocks their ability to look at the view there was a lot of reason to suspect uh, and the other thing is that I think he had tremendous confidence in bill mcraven and the seals you know they had 17 days from when he first gave them approval to, to to bring in the SEALs and start rehearsing. They did a, a complete scale model of the, uh, of, you know, replica of the compound in North Carolina and then another one in Nevada. Um, and he had seen the videos of that. I, I think he was convinced if he was there, they could get him and they could get out. So, you know, sure, it was a risk, but as he likes to say, Obama, uh, you know if it was an easy decision it never gets to my te- desk in the first place
0: right um one overall question i had was is this a story of if you like the macho that has recently been criticized uh, uh of the early time in uh, afghanistan and iraq or was the pursuit of, of bin laden really that important strategically uh to the united states
1: no i think well, I, I, to a certain degree, both, but I think it really, they felt, and, and that incidentally was something that, that Obama, one of the things that really impressed me in this book was the decision-making that went on in the White House. And it wasn't just Obama. I mean, the whole team. Um, I talked a lot to Tom Donlin, who was the national security advisor. And at one point he said, you know, bad, uh, good policy I'm sorry, good process does not guarantee good policy, but bad process guarantees bad policy. And and so even though this was so closely held and a lot of people weren't even allowed in to the discussions like Hillary Clinton until March, and then when they were, they couldn't have staff at all. They literally had to lie to their assistants about why they were going to the White House. You know, they couldn't put Bin Laden meeting on and they couldn't have any staff and they couldn't take any notes. And all of that, uh, they, they really was a meticulous process. They were 17 meetings at the deputies, principals and NSC level uh, before uh, the Obama makes his decision. And this is just in March and April uh, of 2011, 17 meetings. And at, at, at various meetings, Obama would kind of take it bigger and like, you know, is it worth it? to get him. Not just is he there, but and can we get him, but is it worth it to get him? What are we going to get out of getting him? What does the it this say about our larger policy in that region? What's it mean for our relationship with Pakistan? So we took a lot of that into account. And and I'd say there's several reasons why they thought it was important. One, just I, I think they thought one, uh you could say this is macho, but I think there's more to it than that. This was the architect of the worst terror attack on the U.S. in our history, if you can take them out, that's important. Two, it sends a message to future bin Ladens and, you know, to our friends and to our enemies, we won't stop. We will keep going however long it takes, however far we have to travel uh, to, to, to bring justice and, you know, to, uh, to uh, respond. They also thought that it would have a, a real impact on al-Qaeda, that decapitating al Qaeda, they didn't really know to what degree uh, bin Laden was still an operational leader of al Qaeda. It turned out from the treasure trove of information they got that he was a very operational leader, very much still running al Qaeda. But, you know, they thought this will have a a body blow to al Qaeda and terrorists. And, and, you know, as one of of the people, a guy who never had talked before, this was probably my toughest interview to get was a fellow. We call Gary. He was the head of the Pakistan-Afghan department, which was really the the lead group in terms of hunting down Bin Laden. And he said, "You know, they brought the battlefield to Ground Zero and the Pentagon and Shanksville, and we wanted to say to the world, our friends and our enemies, we are going to bring the battlefield back." You know, they thought to Afghanistan, but as it turned out, to Pakistan. So that there, there were a variety of, of reasons from you know uh, bringing the, the the mastermind of justice to the the message it would send to the world about America's um, determination, resolve and and competence and and capability.
0: <laughs> um, did you have a different uh, opinion of Obama at the end than you did w- before you uh, started
1: this project? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't say it was 180 degrees, but yes, I, I was. Uh, two things: one is that, and I kind of knew this, but you know, as you study it and and delve into it, um, he was tougher and more hawkish than I think a lot of people think he was. You know, he he became famous for his speech opposing the Iraq War, but what, but what people don't know or haven't noticed is that in that he said, I'm not against war. I'm just against stupid wars. And then if you remember in the 2008 campaign, he talked about if we got, uh, you know, if we were able to get a a lead on bin Laden, we would take him out. This came up actually in a, a debate in 2008 with John McCain. He's, and, and even talked about Pakistan. He said, "I we would take out bin Laden, even if, You know, uh, I'm putting Pakistan on notice. And then most interestingly, and this I really didn't know, is that shortly after he became president in in January of 2009, in the spring of 2009, he has a meeting in the Oval Office with Panetta and and Donilon and a few other people. And, you know, it's not that the CIA ever stopped trying to find uh, bin Laden. They didn't. But he... He thought he he thought that it wasn't as urgent an issue as he wanted it to be. So he he brought Panetta in and he said, "Look, I want Bin Laden to come to the front of the line. That is your top priority as CIA director is to find and get Bin Laden." And you know, as as people in the in that room described it to me, including Panetta, when the president lights a fire under the CIA director, the CIA director then goes back to Langley. And lights a fire under the agency. So, so you, that that was one thing. Opinion?
0: Yeah. Did you develop any opinion on whether it had not been a priority after 2000, or were there was that a substantial error to have missed him in Tora Bora?
1: Oh, uh, that was that was a huge error, and 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 there's no question that there was an argument inside the Pentagon about how many troops to send there, and Rumsfeld wanted to go in relatively lighter and. Who knows if that's why he escaped? But he did slip the news. I, I, you know, I, 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 when I talked to some people who were there, remember, obviously the Obama team comes in in two thousand nine, and when I would talk about, you know, they he really lit a fire into the CIA. I had some people push back. Mike Morrell, who had been, who was deputy director and had been there all during this period of time, and he kind of took offense at the idea that they had forgotten about Bin Laden, you you know, and obviously they're like anything in history, it's not either one or the other, but, but there's no question, whatever the, the priority was under Bush and and particularly in the later years, uh, it, it, it went back to square one when, when Obama came in.
0: And, and you identify once they had said, this is a compound of interest, you said, you know, they, they sought out, Confirming evidence uh, certainly not overwhelming, they couldn't get to ninety percent certainty but but what what do you think was the most important uh, pieces of evidence that uh, gave them the confidence at least within the CIA to say sixty to eighty percent probability that uh, that bin Laden was there what What really convinced them
1: i think I think a few things first of all. The way they ended up getting, finding about the compound in the first place was they, they had sort of three avenues of how they thought they could track bin Laden. One was his family, and that, they never got a lead there. The other was people inside al-Qaeda. And, you know, over the years, they caught various people like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And first of all, they didn't know where bin Laden was because bin Laden had separated from them, which brings us to the third avenue, and that was courier's. And the feeling was that there was no way, wherever Bin Laden was, whether he was in a cave in uh, in the tribal area or someplace else, there's no way he's doing anything that leaves an electronic footprint. So he's got to have a courier that he can hand a message to that who can hand, you know, can somehow get it to somebody who's operational in Al Qaeda. And they, for a long time, had been tracing couriers and they came up with a fellow who's whose name in Al Qaeda, it wasn't his real name, was Abu Ahmed Al Kuwaiti. And and they were able to find him and trace him, and that's how they found uh, the compound in Abbottabad. So there is a guy that had been a, a courier for uh, bin Laden. He and his brother, and you know, neither of them have any gainful means of employment, buy this piece of land and in Abbottabad and build this compound and then make it super secret. Uh, and, you know, as I talked about all of the, you know, all of the uh, architectural security, but in addition, they wouldn't put the trash out, they would always burn it. Uh, you know, there was nobody was ever allowed inside the compound. They even, the CIA started a, a vaccine campaign, a hepatitis B campaign and started doing it around town and then came to the compound and knocked and said, hey, we're giving vaccines. And you know the nurse was kicked out i mean it was it was just an accumulation of stuff. They had the pacer uh it seemed that the person who that neither of the brothers lived on the third floor um you know that 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 the the best quarters and and the uh security uh fence around the the balcony were being occupied by some mystery third family. it just all added up. And, you know, and there was, it wasn't, it wasn't only how persuasive this was, it was there just seemed to be no other reason for all of this. There was no other reasonable explanation for why all of this was the way it was. And, and, and they were all behaving the way they were.
0: And if the SEAL team thought it was a, a martyr's uh, expedition in, in some way, a suicide uh, expedition why, do you did you develop any sense of why it was not booby trapped? why there were not guards to protect uh, uh absolutely
1: uh, bin Laden had gotten really lazy and really sloppy in terms of operational security. One of the things that shocked them when they were able to you know, got in the compound and got out all the materials uh, he had been in that compound for five years. And you know uh, terror suspect 101 is you you go to a new place every night you know you you uh, or certainly every second night you keep moving so that nobody's able and he's in this place uh, for five years and and one of the other things they very much expected, not only that did a lot of them think that when they were looking at the drone video you know aerial video of the raid that it, it was one of them said I fully expect expected, the compound to explode like the end of a Jerry Bruckheimer uh, action movie. But the other thing is that a lot of them thought that there were going to be escape tunnels. And, and, you know, that, that even if they got there, that bin Laden would have found some way to escape. So I, I think it's very clear. He just, at a certain point, let down his guard.
0: In in your final two chapters, I'm going to uh, get to sort of uh, the concerns of our uh, viewers. Uh, in the final two chapters, you tell the story of the aftermath for, uh, many of the, the major figures and some clearly their reputations were hugely enhanced their, their lives were enhanced, but, but many of them, including some of the seals, uh, you know, this, uh, future wasn't, uh, the greatest, um, were, were you surprised that, uh, their lives sort of went back to normal and, and some were successful and some weren't and, and, uh, they, they returned to, to, if you like, real life?
1: No. <laughs> I mean, no, because that's life. You know, you, they were in an extraordinary uh, situation. And, uh, you know, but they, I mean, I think all the SEALs are extraordinary, but but they went back to being SEALs after this mission and almost all of them, you know, it wasn't like the astronauts who landed on the moon and they weren't going to put any of them out again because they they wanted them to be kind of, these artifacts of American greatness, they all went back into the field and and kept fighting. So, no, I'm not surprised. And, and you know, they were kind of aware of it themselves. One of the things, it's interesting, for for SEAL Team 6, they were very uncomfortable being the hero. There was this, very much this kind of group culture and ethos that, you know, it was the team. Now, that broke down a little bit when they became so celebrated after the bin Laden raid. But for instance, this same SEAL Team Six was involved in the mission to um, to, to to rescue Captain Phillips, another movie. Uh, and, and remember when he was taken by a Somali pirates, and one of them, a guy who actually was also on, on this mission, as was O'Neill, was on the Captain Phillips mission, was the one who took out the final pirate in, through a porthole window in the... In in the in the lifeboat, and after it was over, he kind of, you know, obviously had an adrenaline rush, but kind of went off by himself because he, there's a burden in this team to being singled out, among other things, you know, it it it, it kind of breaks that, and and there's a certain amount of professional jealousy. Uh, So O'Neill, after he takes out Bin Laden that day, still in the compound before he even leaves, is thinking to himself is this the best day of my life or the worst day of my life? Because he knows things probably are not going to ever be the same. And he became very aware. And I think it's one of the reasons in the end that he wrote the book was because some of the SEALs he could tell looking at him differently because he was the man who killed Osama bin Laden.
0: Mm-hmm. Several of the questions have to do with how things are different today. The the fight against terrorism uh, whether uh, for example uh, when uh, president biden uh, said uh, after the the deaths of the uh, uh, the marines uh, in Kabul uh, you know we the United States will track you down uh, was echoing language that Bush had used uh, after 9 eleven in some ways um, uh, it, it, are things very different in our Uh, fight with terrorism today than they were either 10 years ago when they were after bin Laden or 20 years ago immediately after 9-11?
1: Well, I don't know that they're so different than they were 20 years ago, but that was bad because we didn't have enough people inside Afghanistan. We didn't have, you know, I don't mean boots on the ground, but a presence on the ground that was was very effective in obviously uh, stopping 9-11 before it happened and stopping Al Qaeda before they did what they did. Uh, it's very, you know, so I'm, I, I worry that we're going back to the bad old days. It's certainly different now than it was back in 2010 and 2011. We had, you know, a big tens of thousands of people in Afghanistan. We had a a big presence there. We had a, a big presence in Pakistan. Uh, it was our presence in Pakistan which is how we were able to track down the courier and, um, you know, and 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 get to the compound in Abbottabad. You know, the president, President Biden, talks about this over the horizon capability, and what what that basically means, uh, Afghanistan being a landlocked country, is we've got to get there from someplace else. And you know, is Pakistan going to allow us to have a presence? Uh, you know, if we fly from the Persian Gulf, uh, that's a a thousand miles. Um, You you really, you know, you just can't do it the same when you don't have boots or at least uh, slippers, if you will, from spies on the ground. And, you know, just take a look at, I I know that, for instance, the first attack after the the bombing, you know, we took out two ISIS-K people in Eastern Afghanistan. I have, you know, from a very good source in, 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 uh, the Pentagon, they were not key players. They had nothing to do with that, raid. They were involved with ISIS-K, but they were just guys that were part of the, of the group. And it was a kill that we could bring down. It wasn't like, you know, we got the mastermind of the, of the suicide bombing at Kabul airport. And then the second one, the very last strike, the drone strike, the day we left, you know, there was a lot of reporting now that far from it being a, uh, a vehicle loaded with explosive devices. In fact, it was an aid worker with uh, supplies going to to other aid workers and that, and that the 10 civilians were killed and there may have been no ISIS person there. So I think it's a very open question as to how effective we're going to be in fighting the war on terror. And, you know, with the Taliban back in charge, despite what they say, they have tremendous ties to Al Qaeda, you know, you have these two Haqqani brothers who uh, are, are you know, key players in the Taliban and have very close ties to Al Qaeda, ISIS-K, and you just sort of feel that it's going to be terrorism central. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I've talked to some key sources who say, look, if, you, if you're talking about an ability to strike the U.S. homeland, the threat, the greatest threat to us now is from Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen. Far greater than it is from Afghanistan, and that's part of Biden's point, which is that the threat has metastasized, and you know, Afghanistan may become a bad place now, and ground, you know, the the, the headquarters for the terror network. But right now, you've got it in Africa, and you've got it in Yemen and Syria, and across the the Middle uh, East and Asia. Uh,
0: one of the observations is that uh, fighting. Battles for the United States moved in the, in some ways from using standard military to using special forces, and special forces took more and more of the, the most difficult and challenging assignments. And now drones are taking more and more. Uh, is that the way you see the fight on terror and maybe even our military future that we're moving uh, in that direction, more towards drones and, and electronic means and so on?
1: Well, I think drones and electronic means, but also special forces, you know, these kinds of very targeted, uh, specific raids. You know, I, 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 I think after Afghanistan and Iraq, the idea of a big deployment of hundreds of thousands of American troops, I mean, can you write the scenario where it could happen? Sure but I, I think that would be very much a last resort for for um any american president i it, it's interesting one of the things about mcraven uh mcraven literally wrote the book on on these kinds of raids as as you know kirk from having read it read read my book he he does a, a goes to the postgraduate naval school in monterey and he decides to do. Uh, his thesis on special operations forces. And he does a number of case studies uh, from World War II, Hitler with a glider, rescue mission of Mussolini, up through Entebbe, and the Israelis going into Uganda to save uh, Israelis who had been hijacked. And, you know, he comes to this conclusion, looking at all of them, that with surprise, speed, Repetition and purpose that a small force that is really well prepared and 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 the, the bin Laden raid is a perfect example can overwhelm, uh, you know, can go into enemy territory and overwhelm. Now, it turned out there wasn't a big force there, but he felt could have taken out and overwhelmed a, a much bigger force, uh, you know, for a short period of time, this kind of surgical ray uh, and and. Uh, now, I think, you know, look, you're always going to need boots on the ground. You can't do it all electronically. Um, but, I mean, in that case, look, it's not like drones didn't exist in 2011. And, in fact, when Obama makes the decision, he's really got two choices. One is the raid and the other is a drone strike. And one of the reasons he didn't do a drone strike is because they had done a lot of them and they missed people. And, you know, his feeling, of, And in addition to which, in a case like bin Laden, where, not only getting them, but being able to tell the world with proof positive you got them was tremendously important. You know, you you take them out with a drone strike, you're never able to say conclusively, we got Bin Laden. Yeah.
0: Um, there's uh, a number of questions about the fact that the current generation, the younger generation today, has not gone through much of this history of the last 20 years. And wondering if the experience of Younger professionals, younger uh, uh, voters uh, will evaluate terrorism and the process differently than our generation. I'm a little older than you, but our generation uh, has uh, thought about terrorism.
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I certainly think that pre-9-11, that we didn't take terror. I mean, terror was something that happened in other places. Mm-hmm. It happened in the Middle East. It happened in Europe. It didn't happen in the US. I mean, there had been cases, obviously, like uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, but it was domestic terror. The idea of foreign terrorism being able to pull off uh, a 9-11 was kind of unimaginable in this country. Um, people, you know, I think this younger generation has has grown up with it. Um, you know, they're pretty mindful. You look at you look at the the people who were in Afghanistan, and you could think of all kinds of reasons why you wouldn't want to sign up to to go to war in Afghanistan. You know, it it, 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 it and yet when you look at the, the thirteen people who lost their lives in the bombing at Kabul Airport, you know, how many of them were 20, 22, 23, 23? And they weren't drafted. They volunteered. So I think people, you know, there there are a lot of people in this generation. um, I don't know what you'd call 20 year olds. I guess they're not. I think they're less than millennials. I don't know what they are. Somebody please help me. Please help these two old men and tell us what they are. But there are plenty of people like that who still feel very much the commitment. Uh, to 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 go and to defend the United States.
0: Now, now we you know we said we were going to focus on the book in this uh, hour with you and not on sort of your role at Fox. But there's one relevance here, which is: is fighting terrorism a political issue? Is it a partisan issue? Or do you have a sense in in your work that uh, people can talk about fighting terrorism without engaging the the political instincts? I'm not sure there's any
1: subject you can discuss today without it becoming political and polarizing. The the most interesting comment about terror uh, that I heard this weekend on 9-11 was from George W. Bush, Bush 43. He was in Shanksville and he talked about the terror uh, and, you know, the savagery and the anti-democratic feeling and the, the, that, that, motivated al-Qaeda uh, back in 2001. And then he talked about the, the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th of this year. And he said, in fact, the greatest terror threat now may not be from the Middle East. It may be from domestically. And that there is, you know, unfortunately, are all too many similarities between the motivating forces then and now. And, you know, we have this uh, this rally in on, on on in support of the insurrectionists that's going to take place this Saturday in Washington, and they're going to have to put up the seven-foot fence. And I guess it was yesterday morning that a, a fellow uh, was arrested outside the, Demo- the DNC, the Democratic National Committee headquarters, with a machete and a bayonet and a knife. And when I, you know, asked him what why he was there, he said he was on patrol. So... You know, I think terror, uh, w- whether it's uh, foreign-generated or homegrown, is, uh, is a real and clear and present danger. And, uh, you know, I think m- m- most people are understand it and, and, and see it for the threat that it is. But I, to say that it's devoid of politics, nothing is unfortunately devoid of politics these days.
0: Let me ask you one final question, Chris. Um, the The world of journalism that you inhabit, uh, not just because of your particular role at at Fox News, uh, but also uh, just in general, is very different than your father faced in his illustrious career uh, and with uh, sixty Minutes and and all of the other episodes in his career. What What are the main differences between your the world your father operated in? and the information and media world that you operate in today?
1: Well, I'm I'm, I'm gonna get to this in a slightly oblique way, but I promise I'll get there. Um, I, pre-COVID, when I used to be in airports and public places a lot, uh, a lot of people would come up to me and say, thank you for being fair, thank you for being straight, thank you for not taking a side. And while I like praise as much as the next person, I actually, find it a kind of depressing comment, because when I started in newspapers, my first job was at the Boston Globe in 1969, my Lord, 52 years ago. Being fair was what kept you from being fired. It wasn't what got you praise. You know, you got praise for how you reported, uh, how you wrote, how you broadcast. You didn't get, you know, fairness was just a bare minimum requirement. And unfortunately, today, and you know, the point I'm making is that I think it has become a somewhat rare commodity. Um, you know, I think that there's too much, and I and I I would say this about across the media landscape: there's too much opinion, there's too much pushing of agendas, uh, whether it's the front page of the New York Times or uh, an evening newscast or cnn and msnbc and fox um you know i my feeling has always been and i guess i'm in some ways more like my father than 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 uh a a lot of people today my feeling is you don't push an agenda you don't pull your punches you don't pick sides you hold everybody to account and you're just as tough on everyone um and and you know it you you Everybody has personal opinions, but that's irrelevant to how you report the news. So, um, I, I, you know, the praise I get, I feel, is kind of a sad commentary about the state of the news business today, and uh, that, that would be the biggest difference between how it was practiced in the old days and how it was, how it's, I think it's generally practiced today, and if people want to call me old-fashioned, I plead proudly guilty.
0: Chris, thank you very much for taking uh, this time to be with the Commonwealth Club audience. Uh, Our thanks to Chris Wallace, author of Countdown Bin Laden. We encourage you to pick up a copy at your local bookstore. If you would uh, like to watch more virtual programs uh, or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit CommonwealthClub.org. I'm Kirk Hansen. Thank you. And we'll see you next time.